Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. Eighty years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Jackie Barbieri. She is the founder and CEO of Whitespace, a spatial data analytics company. She is on a mission to empower others with the data training and tools they need to develop privacy-aware solutions to human security challenges. Prior to founding Whitespace, Jackie supported DOD, IC, and Homeland Security missions as an intelligence analyst. She has over a decade of experience developing and implementing groundbreaking data collection and analytic approaches in the defense, intelligence, and commercial sectors. Jackie holds a Bachelor's of Science in International Politics and a Master's of Arts in Security Studies, both from Georgetown University. She is also a graduate of the Army's University of Foreign, Military, and Cultural Studies Red Team Leaders course. Jackie, we are so excited to have you with us today. And, you know, this is special for me for a few reasons, one of which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the episode. But first... You were one of the original AWIC members, and um, you started with us, and you've stuck with us for it's almost seven years now, and so I'm just thrilled that we can share your story. Oh, thank you so much, Megan. I'm so excited to be here and to be a part of this. Well, great. Let's get started. So I've heard you describe yourself as a first-generation college graduate and a fourth-generation entrepreneur. Can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about your family and their entrepreneurial spirit? Yeah, definitely. So it's funny because it just so happens that we are recording on the seventh anniversary of when I walked out of my secure W-2 job and drove directly to my first client meeting as the founder and CEO of Whitespace. So Seven years ago, um, I had to tell a, you know, a beloved boss and mentor, John Marion, that I was leaving uh, his company. And you know, when I told him, he looked at me and he said, I get it. Entrepreneurship is in your DNA. You have to do this. And the reason why John said that was because he had heard me talk about my father and my maternal grandmother, uh, Mama Tina, uh, who has had an incredible impact and influence on me from a very early age. Um, I'll start with my grandmother. So she grew up in rural Italy and her father owned multiple businesses in their very small, very beautiful town of Capocele, where they lived. And she worked for him in both the general store and the beauty parlor he owned. And the story she tells these days about the side hustles she ran out of that (laughs) store at ages 12, 13, 14 are almost unbelievable. Uh, Once she even sold the literal coat off of her own back to a friend who was admiring it. Yeah. So 
she immigrated to the United States, didn't speak a lick of English, didn't have a high school education. She raised three daughters uh, while taking care of a sick husband. And she was the sole breadwinner. And she single-handedly ran a beauty parlor and a jewelry business out of her home in Queens, New York. She sent all three of the girls to private Catholic school and eventually to college. And so that's, you know, those are sort of the first two generations of entrepreneurship in my lineage. And then college is where my mother, one of her three daughters, met my father. And shortly thereafter, they decided to, let's say, drop out of school, but leave college <laughs> and get married. Um, and a little over a year later, you know, good Catholic family, I came along. Um, and uh, my father was just starting his career in politics. And before I turned two, just before I turned two, actually, we moved to Northern Virginia and he started his own business. And what's crazy about this story is that it was kind of like me in a field that barely existed. Uh, when he was starting as political polling and strategy. So growing up, I spent half of every summer at Mama Tina's house. And, you know, it would be impossible to spend that much time there and not learn the value of hard work and watch her interact with clients and listen to little bits of Italian wisdom and anecdotes about the importance of being self-sufficient. Um, and then every day at home, you know, I was experiencing uh, how hard my dad was working to, to build his business up. And by the time I was ready to go to college, it's amazing. My parents could afford to send me to Georgetown. Like that was such a far cry from where they started, which was making the choice between diapers and baby formula back at the grocery store in Queens when I was an infant. And it's almost as if entrepreneurship was a core value in my family. Um, it just wasn't until actually pretty recently, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but pretty recently that I realized what an impact it had on me. You know, to me, it was kind of just normal. And I think this is mostly because at the time that I graduated, my plan was not to become an entrepreneur at all. Well, and how proud your grandmother must be to have a granddaughter like you just from where oh. she came from and to see where you are. And it's quite amazing. And I'm sure she smiles all the time. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your path into the intelligence community. What did that look like? Was it a straight path for you? Or was it a bit more winding? You know, this is sort of like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's kind of hard <laughs> uh, to answer this question. I, I think that my path was probably a lot straighter than most. You know, a lot of times I hear uh, folks, you know, uh, guests on the show talking about how they, you know, it was by chance, you know, that they ended up in the community. I don't, I don't think that was necessarily the case for me, but I did have a little bit of a, of a path in. And, you know, it was sort of by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was trying to figure out, you know, first child type A, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I had a few languages under my belt. I'm a huge language nerd. Um, I was incredibly lucky to have traveled internationally, actually even to the Middle East uh, by this point. I knew I was interested in politics, but that domestic politics were like way too binary for me. Um, I knew that I loved traveling, experiencing other cultures and learning the nuances of languages. And, and how that enabled people to interact and build relationships in other countries. So I thought maybe a career at the State Department would be a good fit. So I applied for and was awarded a competitive internship at the State Department in the Office of Translation and Interpretation. And this was the summer before my junior year of high school. And as much as I absolutely love language, it took only one summer for me to realize that that was 
not the job for me. <laughs> um, and, and you know what? This was hugely valuable, by the way, because I tell mentees all the time, it's almost more valuable early in your career to figure out what you don't want to do than to fall into exactly what you do want to do. A hundred percent. I I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. So just a few weeks after that internship ended and I was kind of bummed out, you know, I felt like I had hit a dead end. I didn't yet have this perspective, by the way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight's <laughs> always twenty twenty. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, you know, I went back to school, right? And so a few days later, I'm walking to class and I noticed something a little bit strange about a plane flying over our campus. And I was walking to my second block class. And when I arrived, uh, I went to high school in Northern Virginia. And when I arrived in my classroom, I saw the Twin Towers burning on the television. And my AP English teacher was frozen in front of the image. Like she still had the remote in her hand, you know, sort of suspended as if she was about to change the channel. And she just was shocked and just stopped. My classmates were terrified. I mean, so many had parents working in D.C. and in the Pentagon, and some of them very sadly lost parents that day. Um, Close family friends of ours lost a daughter uh, in New York. And all of a sudden, a fire was lit inside of me. Uh, One, honestly, that still burns today, and every now and then the the flame gets fanned. Um, I just had to get into the fight somehow, right? So I started researching. And figuring out how could I do that. So one day, it kind of all culminated, right? I'm sitting in one room of my house, watching coverage of shock and awe on CNN. (laughs) And my dad was literally sitting on the other side of that same wall in the only room in the house where he was allowed to smoke cigarettes, (laughs) (laughs) watching the same thing, like first world problems here, right? And I bust into his office and announced that I was going to enlist in the Marine Corps. And he nearly swallowed his cigarette. Um, once he recovered and sort of <laughs> gained his composure, composure. <laughs> and by the way, he's not an easily shocked man. Like if you imagine, just picture Tony Soprano. My dad's name's also Tony. <laughs> Pretty much the same kind of situation, right? So um, um, once he recovered, he kind of said, oh, okay, okay, Jackie, sit down. Um, and he asked me very calmly, you know, why would you enlist? instead of going into college and taking the officer route. And I very quickly explained to him that if I'd enlisted, I'd have a better shot at going to the Defense Language Institute where I could learn Arabic and get involved into, in the counterterrorism fight right away. Um, he asked why, like, why did I wanna do that? Why did I wanna get into the fight? And I told him that I just, I wanted to serve. I felt so strongly that every citizen, like no matter what capacity, to me, service, you could be a school teacher, you could be a social worker. There's so many different ways to serve um, your community and, and, and country. I said, I just felt like every citizen should serve their country in some capacity at some point in their career. So then he sort of asked me, well, have you ever considered maybe using your brain in the name of national security? And I, I can't even imagine the look I gave him, but I remember how I felt. And I was like, what, what do you mean? You know? Um, and he said, you know, a career in intelligence, you know, like maybe the CIA. And I was like, the CIA, me, are you serious? And he responded, yeah, you're exactly the kind of material they're looking for. You have language skills, you've traveled, you can write. And Megan, honestly, I I tried. Like, 
I honestly can't remember the remainder of that conversation because that was it. From that moment on, everything I did from the schools I applied to, to the courses I took, to the internships I worked, they were all geared toward one goal. And that was being recruited by the agency. So I don't know. In hindsight, it does feel like a straight shot, you know, a straight path. But there was that little bit of exploration and discovery that eventually got me there. So one thing I love about your story is that you changed your mind about which path you wanted to take. And you just explained that in your story. I imagine that that must have been hard, especially if you were committed to a singular, you know, career path for a long time. And then with one conversation, it kind of shifted. So what was that experience like for you? Oh, man, Megan, the story I just told you pales in comparison to what ended up happening, right? So like, we make plans and God laughs, right? Is that the saying, right? So right. <laughs> so I set my sights on Georgetown. I applied. Somehow I got in <laughs> to the school <laughs> foreign service. I was just in awe of my, my colleagues in undergrad. It was just a tremendous academic experience. But all throughout college, my goal was to go into operations. And until like until senior year, it, it remained the goal. What happened senior year was that I was kind of dating a guy pretty seriously. And so instead of applying for the job I wanted through the website, I applied for an analyst position thinking that would keep me stateside more. But at the same time, I knew that I probably wouldn't be eligible for the job without a master's degree. So I'm not really sure what was going on there, but it wasn't terribly logical. All I know (laughs) is that I submitted my application um, and sort of moved on uh, with my life. Actually, fast forward to post-graduation, I had been working this incredible internship from like the summer before my junior year through my senior year. And that company offered me a full-time job when I graduated. I accepted it. And the job was doing research on what we would call now the jihadi dark web, right? So I was using my Arabic language skills, looking for bomb-making materials and ideological material to translate and analyze for a DHS project. It was a a counter-IED project. And uh, they had also sponsored me for my clearance. So I was on my way, right? So one day I'm sitting in my cube, you know, researching away and my phone rang and it was, you know, the the stereotypical, you know, uh, 703 number. And uh, it was a recruiter for the agency who asked if I would consider an operational job. Well, lo and behold, I had just recently broken up with my college beau. So really the timing couldn't have been better. And I said, yes. And, you know, you can fast forward 11 months of interviews, assessments, waiting, more assessments until I hit that very last round of interviews. Um, And I had asked right before this last round when I needed to start preparing for my language exam. My Arabic vocabulary was good, but it was getting pretty narrowly focused on chemistry and bomb making terminology. (laughs) And I really wanted to brush up before the test, right? Because I figured Mm -hmm. there'd be some conversational portions. Um, and they told me not to worry, that wouldn't come until later in the process, you know, just go ahead and roll into the interview. So, so fast forward, and I promise I will get to the point here. I show up for the interview, and I have to say I was super late and totally anxious because I got very lost uh, on my way to the campus. But I walk into this room, I was escorted into this room, full of other applicants who were getting a briefing before breaking out into our interviews. And when it came time, I was escorted by two females. Uh, One was wearing a Middle East and North Africa lanyard. We'll call her Mina (laughs) 
for short, and another with uh, a laptop who was, you know, quote unquote training, right? So we walk to this very small closet of an interview room and the interview started and it was a pretty tense dynamic. It was so different from my first set of interviews uh, that were very like collegial and open. Um, Mina was preparing me with questions and the trainee was like tapping away furiously at the keyboard whenever I spoke. I felt like I was bombing all of the questions, right? And it wasn't long before Mina pulled a BBC article, uh, BBC Arabic article from her folio and slid it across the table to me. So I kind of gulped. Um, and in Arabic, she asked me to read the article to her. So I cleared my throat and I gave it a shot. Now, this was a pretty advanced article. And after a few lines, I started to stumble. And she snapped, stop, in Arabic, halas, and snatched the article back from me. And I like kind of cowered and I apologized in Arabic and told her that I hadn't been practicing and I was very sorry. And she responded pretty coldly and rebuked me that I should have been practicing every day. Um, and then when I was almost at the point of tears, she asked me if I wanted to reassess my language ability in Arabic. And I think I had initially, like on paper, conservatively reported myself at, as what you would call like a one plus one plus, which is pretty good for a non-native speaker. And so in that moment, I replied that she should just mark me down as a zero plus zero plus. And as somebody who loves language, who like has poured so much time and energy, I think I took 120 credit hours of Arabic in college it was like a dagger, right? Anybody who's worked so hard and invested in maybe as a little bit of a type A perfectionist, this is like, you know. It was like a gut punch. It was gut like a punch. gut punch. Totally. Like it totally shook me to my core. And honestly, the rest of the interview continued in the same fashion. I don't even remember the end of it. I just remember getting somehow getting back to my car and feeling sick and like breaking down. Like I was heartbroken I was embarrassed. I was angry with myself. I was confused. Like I had geared my whole early adult life to do this job. But at the same time, in that moment, it felt so wrong to me. Like I got so close to it. Like I tasted it and it mm -hmm. tasted bad. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I realized, you know, somewhere driving home along Route 66, that this was as much of a test for the agency as it was for me. Because up until that point, you know, I couldn't bear the fact of going into an operational career unless I had planned to stay in it for a long time. Like I knew that at the time that I was applying that training cost somewhere around like $250,000, right? And I wasn't going to waste taxpayer money by only serving for a couple of years. And so I felt like this huge additional pressure I was putting on myself to know that I was truly committed. So here I was you know, after a night's sleep and a good cry and maybe a glass of wine, I'm not really sure. Um, the next morning I woke up and I was like, you know what? I'm on my way back to my normal job, right? It's my first real SCIF job. I was talking to battalion S2s, uh, intelligence officers, sometimes on a daily basis. Um, they're in Iraq on the ground and I was providing them with perspective they couldn't get anywhere else. Like that direct support to Intel and operations was what I was aiming for back when I barged into my dad's office when I was 17. <laughs> and my teammates and superiors never made me feel the way I did in that interview room. So when I, you know, when the CIA recruiter called me back a week or so later, and she sort of asked me to submit my final piece of admin paperwork, I informed her that I wasn't going to do that um, because I was self-selecting out of the process. 
And she seemed really surprised and confused. And, and she asked me why. And I told her that I was serving units downrange every single day in my current role. And that was my goal. And, you know, she let me know that they'd keep my file open for 12 months. Should I change my mind? And at this point, those 12 months have came and gone about 13 times over. I just find that so important for people to hear because I think there's so many of us, me included, that, you know, when you first think about a job in the intelligence community, you know, most people think about operations, right? That's their bucket list item, or that's that sexy job that everybody wants. And, um, and I think there's some, you know, glorification of what that is. Um, and that could be just by what they hear or what they see on TV. I don't know. But the point I want to really pull on is that, you know, you were doing something already, that was, you know, supporting a mission, supporting the the country, you know, really having your hands on um, with what was going on at the time. And so there are lots of ways you can have that kind of um, sexy job. And you're just you're sharing with all of us. There's not just one way. Right. So absolutely. I, absolutely. Megan, like Actually, I look back on the job I was actually in at that time, and I'm like, man, I had no idea how lucky I was. Like, we'll talk more about it later, but that job was so much fun, um, and it was so meaningful to me. So I think I needed that that tough experience, mm -hmm. that sort of reality check to appreciate where I was, you know, what I had already achieved. And so one other thing is that there have been many points in my career, you know, those 13 years since that moment, that day, where I've thought about what if I had gone down that path, right? What if that experience had been different for me? Mm -hmm. How different would I be as a person? How different would my life be? And I have the utmost respect and gratitude for people who serve um, in that capacity, in an operational capacity, whether it's as a civilian or in the DOD or, or what have you. That is an incredibly difficult, that's even an understatement, but incredibly difficult life um, to lead. However, I think one of the biggest points of perspective I've gained over the years, like reflecting on this, is that it just, it wasn't right for me. And my gut, in my gut, I knew it. I couldn't understand it, really, the fullness of it in the moment. But that's a data point I go back to and say, you know, it re it sort of reinforces and and um, strengthens the idea that you just sort of always have to trust your gut when something doesn't feel right for you or in general it it just probably isn't and and you know there's no substitute for for a strong intuition well thank you so much for sharing that story I think that's that was a really important story to tell and and I appreciate you sharing it with us absolutely. So tell me what was next, you know, what was next in your career and, and how did you find your way into activity-based intelligence space? That's a great question, Megan. Um, <laughs> it is what I will call a lily pad, right? It's also a really great example of the upside of working as a contractor, right? Early in my career, I had, I called myself a quote, self-loathing contractor, right? Like I really <laughs> wanted to be a blue badge, like so badly, it just never worked out. Um, the first story is just one example. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was a contractor. And as a result, I got to touch and see and get involved in so many different things in a very short period of time. Um, and there was this new project 
starting at my company and it was about this mysterious quote unquote ABI thing, right? And nobody knew what it meant. I remember trying to research it on the high side and I could not come up with anything at the time. Uh, it was just too new. This was like back in 2011. And it turns out that that mystery acronym, that mystery concept led to one of the best and honestly most intimidating jobs I've ever had. Um, so all of a sudden, I, you know, I sort of sign up and say, sure, yeah, I'll work on the new project. I have no idea what it is. I don't know the boss. Like, sign me up. Um, and I was working with some of the most elite analysts and operators in the world. Um, and I had access to some of some just truly groundbreaking technologies and sensing capabilities. Forget the engineering talent I was working with. Like the data scientists were incredible, still are, um, all of them. So I had some serious imposter syndrome um, with ABI, but I could feel that flame burning. The one I talked about back in high school after 9-11, like this was exactly what I needed to be doing. So I had to figure out a way to be useful to these incredibly accomplished operators and analysts. So the task on the project was to organize and facilitate a really um, interesting exercise that uh, was used to train analysts and test new technologies simultaneously. It was an interagency exercise. Um, and it's where I learned the value of being a servant leader for the first time. Right. I couldn't establish legitimacy with any of my colleagues or government counterparts based on street cred. There was no way. I mean, some of these individuals had already deployed eight, 10 or more times um, supporting operations. I hadn't deployed once. Um, so I ended up instead trying to figure out how to be the most helpful person on the team and learn as much as I could from everyone. And I sort of became the glue that helped connect everyone together and the continuity from planning meeting to planning meeting. And I became the team lead. Um, and it was an incredible experience. Like I'm still very close with many of the folks I worked with to this day. Um, some really incredible friends came out of it. And the exercise itself was like a production. It was like part Hollywood script, right? Writing. Um, and then we would have to manage the production in real time with role players and sensors collecting and feed data to the analysts and make sure that they were applying the tradecraft properly and lead them down rabbit holes and let them fail um, and, and make it, you know, make them brief in really difficult situations. Uh, at one point I had an analyst turn around to me. I mean, the classroom, the, they weren't even classrooms. They were tents. Like we had them in tents and wow. uh, they, smelled bad. And like, it, you know, this was true, like pre-deployment training. And I had one of the analysts turn around to me. I was like, Hey guys, how you doing? What's going on? And he was like, you are like undermining my faith in my ability to do my own job. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe we made this a little too hard this time. You don't know. No, but that's the, that's like the trough of despair before they kind of got on the scent of, of the, of the bad actor network. But um, it was an, it was an awesome, awesome experience. And so that's how I got exposed to you know, in really short order, the tradecraft, the real world application, the technology that enabled it, and the operational mission uh, that it could support. So that, that's how I got involved in ABI. That's so cool. So you mentioned uh, just a few moments ago about uh, lily pad moments. So I'm wondering if you could explain to us what you mean by lily pad moments and share with us a few stories of those moments throughout your career. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the ABI story is definitely one of them. 
Um, but before that, and like where the metaphor comes from, you know, early on in my career, I was really worried that I had specialized myself into a dead end, right? I was an expert in a niche of a niche topic. And I was worried there wasn't much further I could go. Um, I felt stuck. So I was this Arabic language capable research analyst who really understood jihadi media cells and operations and techniques, tactics, and procedures. Um, but like how marketable was that knowledge and were those skills? Like how many different missions could I actually support? So I felt stuck and I actually questioned my own judgment, even though it was my heart and my interest and my strengths that led me into that niche of a niche. Um, and I remember when I was in this place, I was talking to my mom on the phone on my way home from work one night. And she, she was like, Jackie, you know, you have to think about life and your career as if you're sitting on a lily pad in the middle of a pond, right? Behind you are all the steps you took to get to where you are right now. And all you have to do is wait patiently, keep your eyes open, and sooner or later, the next pad is going to emerge. And when it does, you're going to jump onto it. And I reflect on that guidance often and like how insightful it was. And I, I share it whenever I get a chance because that feeling of not knowing and not having a next move can be absolute torture. But like everything else in life, it's temporary. I, I, I read recently um, that as a human being, you can't experience any emotion like any emotion will take its course in 90 seconds, unless you feed into it. So if you can sit with something for 90 seconds, whether it be uncertainty, stress, grief, what have you, if you're not feeding into it, it'll pass. And I think that is just such an important skill to develop. And like, I'm sitting here preaching it. Look, I I'm still practicing it. <laughs> um, no, I feel like you need to write a book. This is great <laughs> stuff, Jackie. <laughs> Well, thanks. Maybe I will. Who knows? Um, but no. But I think the, the craziest thing about this lily pad story and the metaphor is that just that the wisdom behind it. Like my mom didn't have a career. She didn't finish college until after I graduated college. She raised three kids. That was her job. You know, she supported the breadwinner and the entrepreneur of the family because that required a lot of support. But she somehow knew exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. Um, and I think that I don't know, we call it like women's intuition or some sort of ancient wisdom or whatever you want to call it. But um, I just feel like it was so insightful. And, and I, like I said, I reflect on it often. Before you had even used the word wisdom, that was the first word I thought of when you told that story was how wise your mom was. Um, that was, that's beautiful. I love it. You know, we're here on a special day, as you mentioned early on. You founded your own company seven years ago today, White Space Solutions. So um, I think it's kind of cool that we get to mark this milestone with you today. So congratulations. Thank you. I do too. I really do. It's it's really great. Um, so how did you decide to take that leap? Because that is a very big leap. And what has the journey been like for you the past seven years? Okay, I'm going to start with how I decided to take the leap, like the moment that crystallized it for me. So in 2013, I was finishing up my grad degree. It was like my last class. It was a summer class, second session, last week of summer session. I'm working like 60, maybe 70, 80 hour weeks. I don't know, something unhealthy. Like it was not good, whatever was going on. But I was loving it. I was like in the throes of the ABI project. And I found out I was expecting. 
I mean, I was really tired working on that last term paper, <laughs> like re- tired in a way I didn't know I could be tired. <laughs> um, and then I found out why. And I was so excited. And all throughout that pregnancy, I never slowed down. I felt like almost defiant of the physical limitations and the changes that were happening to me. Like I wasn't going to let it slow me down, you know? Um, But let me tell you, it was a very humbling experience for me. Now I joke that my daughter has been in places that most people will never see Um, that, you know, my male colleagues in a way that only male colleagues can used to ask me if she was cleared, you know, when she was still in utero. <laughs> um, and she still, she knows the story of me trudging into the Pentagon at eight months preg- pregnant, which that's a long hike, by the way, um, you know, in the cold uh, both ways and wondering like, am I going to go into labor? Like, is this going to happen? Oh so, my goodness. yeah. I, I, so because I never slowed down. So to anybody out there, slow down. Um, I, I figured that out in the second and third pregnancies, but because I never slowed down, I, I was having false labor all the time. So it became a very stressful pregnancy. Fast forward, um, I had my daughter and went on maternity leave and it was weird for me. I had never spent that much time not working professionally, like not like having my brain and my body in a totally different mode. And it really rocked me from an identity perspective. But all the same, like I was so excited to go back to work but I was so terrified and sad to leave my daughter. Like I, I had such mixed feelings and I'll never forget my first day going back to a great job, by the way, it was an incredible job, very challenging. And I had a lot of freedom and autonomy and I was, you know, working directly with the leadership of the company in a lot of cases. And I re- will never forget pushing the up button of the elevator. And it sort of dawned on me. If I'm going to spend one second away from that little girl, it better be worth it. And that's sort of when I had my, forgive the language, shit or get off the pot moment. (laughs) Because before that, the seeds had been planted, right? So my mom tried to start planting the seeds when I was still in my early 20s. I was not even close to being ready to start my own company. I, you know, was still finding my way uh, professionally. And whatever I was doing at the moment, whenever she would bring it up, I loved too much, right? To think about stepping, stepping out of it. Fast forward to a few years later, actually, right after I got involved in ABI and, and that exercise I mentioned, uh, my dear friend and a fellow Iron Butterfly guest, Game Breaker, she oh. asked me bluntly, why don't you just start your own company? And by the way, I barely knew her. Like, she just like, let me have it. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love real, it. Real, real talk. And that got my wheels turning a bit more. So this is like 2011, this is 2012, actually. But it wasn't until 2014 that I really got serious. And it like pushing that button in the elevator, it was just a few months later that I incorporated the company. And just a few months after that, that I gave notice and I stepped out of the office for the last time. Wow. And here we are seven here years later, are. seven years later. That's amazing. So, you know, it seems to me like you've made your career decisions based on the person you want to become. How have your experiences shaped this outlook? <laughs> wow. I'm glad it seems that way, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, seriously, I, I think the project has been more about learning and growing into the woman that I actually am. Like not to get 
too touchy feely, but no, I think that's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. <sighs> yeah. It's really been about like becoming and owning who she is, right? Who I am. Like going back to that concept of the lily pad moment, my intuition guided me at every step, right? How long I stayed somewhere, where I went next, and what I found interesting even in the jobs I was in, right? Like what I gravitated towards. So by following what called to me the most out of the options in front of me over time, I now started to see some patterns and the themes and kind of reflect on them on a more macro level. And that's helped me appreciate really in the last year or two, what makes me tick, what motivates me and how I want to manifest my skills and strengths in the world toward an end that's greater than myself, right? I, and I really, I credit the last year and a half of sort of being more homebound and, and being more focused on my family and, you know, just life has changed a lot, right? Like our patterns of life have changed a lot in the last year and a half. And I've slowed down in a way that I never would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that gave me time to reflect. I think it gave a lot of people time to reflect. Um, And I learned through that, that while I thought national security was my alpha and omega from a professional perspective, and I was so passionate about serving that mission, it's actually just one type of problem that I feel called to work on, right? The broader project of human security is where my heart really lies. Um, You know, I know we're recording this just after a pretty contentious election day, um, but politics aside, when I was born... The then president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, and the first lady, Nancy Reagan, wrote me a beautiful letter. And it was a letter welcoming me as a citizen of this great nation, right? And that letter hung in my nursery and in my bedroom for most of my childhood. And then at some point it was packed up in a box and I honestly didn't rediscover it until a few years ago. And now that letter hangs next to my desk in my office because it describes so beautifully what I found my calling to be. He talked in 1985 about how threats and to human life and human freedom were at their zenith and how we were in dire need of those dedicated to their sacred cause. I mean, I still get goosebumps, um, you know, and a little bit emotional when I think about what that really means and how true it still is today. And maybe it's the power of suggestion or just random luck, but that letter written at the height of the Cold War rang so true to me in 2017 when I pulled it out of that box and read it. And my husband was standing right there and I like, I just kind of gasped. So the question now becomes like, how exactly am I doing that? And why become an entrepreneur to do that? And the answer is in our society, our economic system, I think a company is the best opportunity for leverage, right? That's just the way I see it. Meaning my best option for creating outsized impact was to start a company. And so shortly after I uncovered that letter, this was really cool. I sat down with each and every member of my company and I asked them what they thought the greatest threat to human life and human freedom was. Not threat, threat. We were going to get down to the root cause. Okay. And I had some incredible conversations with them. I took copious notes. And what I concluded, what I learned from them and with them through this exercise is that if you really dig into this, and by the way, I welcome debate and discourse on this topic, (laughs) bring it on, bring it on. You will conclude that every threat to human life or freedom comes from a scarcity or fear-based mindset, whether it's another individual or a leader that has that mindset. And so what I want to do above all is develop solutions that reduce uncertainty, 
even just the slightest bit for key decision makers or people in power, whether in the commercial sector or in the government sector, because reducing that uncertainty reduces the feeling of risk. And that feeling of risk is closely tied to one of scarcity. It's when we as human beings begin to feel boxed in, we see with tunnel vision and we revert to that scarcity mindset. So if I can help reduce the amount of scarcity in the form of risk that decision makers perceive just a little bit by giving them reliable data-driven answers to their toughest questions, then I think in some way, small way even, I can help protect human life and human freedom. So that's who I want to be. You are one special woman, Jackie Barbieri. You got me teary-eyed a little bit. (laughs) I was trying to pull it together. (laughs) That's my praise. Thank you. Oh, wow. We're coming to the end of this, this special episode. And as you know, we end each episode with the same question. And in keeping with our name, Iron Butterfly, if you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? I would be the Pearl of Delphi. That's awesome. Tell me why. So I talked about this job a lot, right? My very first job as an analyst in a skiff, I was a threat emulator, which means it was my job to get deep into the mindset and techniques and tactics and procedures of a specific insurgent group and use that knowledge to predict what they were most likely to do, especially if it was quote unquote outside of the box or the norm of what we would expect. So within my first 30 days on the job, my boss, out of the blue, gave me an award. It it wasn't official or anything. He made it up himself. It was pretty cute. But he called it the Oracle of Delphi Award. And he was very clear, like, he invented it just for me. And I was really grateful for the award, of course, and a little shocked. But I was also puzzled, like, only in the way a really naive, idealistic young person can be. And I say that with a lot of love. There's nothing wrong with being any of those things, natural. Um, But, like, wasn't I just doing my job, (laughs) you know? Um, didn't everyone dig deep, deep, deep down into the why driving their subject to understand the factors that motivated them and use that information to predict what that group would do in the future? And that question, that piece of sand or grit stuck with me as I progressed in my career. And at points, it really stung. Like I remember at least once, at least once, when a more technical counterpart drove me to tears questioning how I saw something in the reporting that he didn't know. He doesn't know he drove me to tears. I waited until I got into the ladies room, bathroom stall, like we all do, like a professional before I let it go. But he wanted to know how in the heck did I come up with that prediction or outcome? And moreover, how in the world was it right? Like I, I couldn't answer those questions other than pointing him to my sources and like trying to map out my logic. It even frustrated me at times and made me question myself deeply. So in nature, a pearl is formed when an oyster tries to expel a piece of sand or grit. And in the process, they create something beautiful. That award, that was my piece of sand. And the pearl it produced is white space. Our goal is to provide answers rooted in a nuanced understanding of the relationships between causal factors that inform what will happen in an uncertain future, future, the ultimate expression of the sacred role Delphi played in the ancient world. So that's why I'm the Pearl of Delphi. I I absolutely love it. It's perfect. Jackie, um, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. This was this was lovely. And you know, on behalf of all the women in the intelligence community, thank you for being a leader and a role model. Thank you for your service and thank you for sharing your story with Iron Butterfly. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Megan. Absolutely. 
This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Wise Wisteria and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.